And so it's really bringing back together, you know, my deep passion for community organizing and community engagement with design. And in particular, you know, the goal there and what drives it is a belief that there's just a massive creative potential out in the world that's being largely wasted. And in doing this work every day, I work in communities with people who are so bright and intelligent and resourceful in how they think about their lives, yet they very rarely have a say in the systems that are created around them. So in small ways, we're trying to recruit that talent to be part of our teams, and in much bigger ways, we're trying to figure out how to, how to unlock that potential all over the world. Welcome to Design Drives your audio experience about what, how, and why design drives things forward. A podcast hosted by Sebastian Gear, together with forward-thinking design practitioners from around the world. In this special episode, I got the chance to talk to Robert Fabricant, co-founder and partner of Dahlbeck Design, author of the book User-Friendly, as well as a board member of Prekelt Foundation. Formerly, he was a fellow and MVP of Creative at Frog in New York for many years. It was really an outstanding opportunity to learn from Robert after a long conference day at Interaction 20 in Milan, where we recorded the episode. One of his perspectives is design is a privilege, which is such a great way to look at the responsibility and the urge to use the capacity that we have in a positive way. Robert is driving the role of design in social impact and it's fascinating to hear how he and Dolberg Design empower people to shape and design systems and be part of the process in many parts of the world like India and Africa, fundamentally empowering people to be part of designing the systems they are living in. We also touch on this book user-friendly and some of the key messages, the future of interaction design and what he thinks are key challenges in the future and how design can be part of contributing and solving these problems. So I hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm here with Robert Fabricant at Interaction 20. You founded, co-founded Dahlbeck Design. You also got quite a bit of history with Frog, leading some of the efforts there. And, and you're also an author of a book that's called User-Friendly, which came out in November, which uh, a lot of design peers tell me it's a, an amazing book. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. And we're going to talk also about you know, your journey, about your view on intersection of design and technology, and then also talking a little bit around the impact of design and where you think, see things going. So maybe for the people who don't know you, could you give them a brief introduction about your journey and your drive behind what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I tell people is that somehow, when I was a kid, all the mentors that I knew, friends of my parents, that I seemed to kind of admire the most, mm -hmm. had very kind of circuitous journeys through their, their life and their work and their careers. It wasn't a straight line, and mine has never been one. So I consider what I do right now my fourth career. It's been a pleasure to reinvent myself pretty regularly. And uh, I actually started out working in community organizing and civic engagement when I got out of university. I had been exposed to design. I was always one of those creative kids. I drew, I sketched. But at the time, you know, I, I was lucky growing up in New York. I was exposed a bit to design studios. The most famous maybe being, being uh, Chermayev and Geismar, a very well-known mm -hmm. brand and identity studio. Mm -hmm. But I got out of school and I wanted to get my hands dirty in the real world. So I did some community organizing. I was a painter. And I got back into design in part because as a painter, I was using a lot of technology tools, was starting to manipulate images. This is in the early 90s. And I just got fascinated with the tools themselves. And I thought, you know, at the time it seemed to me 
science fiction that you could get hired to actually design those mm -hmm. tools and mm -hmm. think through kind of how they were organized, how they behaved, and how they opened up new possibilities for people. And so that was really the hook that got me back into design. And most recently, uh, founding Dahlberg five years ago, you know, we're focused purely on the civic space. We work with governments, some businesses, and nonprofits. And so it's really bringing back together, you know, my deep passion for community organizing and community engagement with design, and in particular, you know, the goal there and what drives it is a belief that there's just a massive creative potential out in the world that's being largely wasted. And in doing this work every day, I work in communities with people who are so bright and intelligent and resourceful in how they think about their lives, yet they very rarely have a say in the systems that are created around them. So in small ways, we're trying to recruit that talent to be part of our teams, and in much bigger ways, we're trying to figure out how to, how to unlock that potential all over the world. Mm -hmm. And you've also been at Frog for, for quite a while. Can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of your experiences there? Yeah, so I don't want to overlook that. You know, that was in many ways the fulcrum of my career in terms of just being so lucky to land. Well, there was a, a bit of bad luck in that I landed in Frog in 2001. And within six months, the market had crashed. The towers had come down on 9-11. So I had to fire almost the entire New York staff. So it was, a, it was a long journey, but Frog was such a great place starting in early 2000 to see ideas, not just about products and not just about services, but the cross-cutting role of design kind of bloom across so many industries. And I feel very lucky, you know, particularly in a place like this with so many peers walking around that over that 13 year period, I could see these ideas wash up across different industries and have the time and the space to sort of live through those transformations one at a time, whereas now it seems like it's a bit of a cacophony. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting, what you mentioned there about most of the creative capabilities are wasted. Um, yeah. Can you maybe outline what you mean exactly with that? Sure. So, and, it, and it's a great question. We work with a, a talent base. So to, be, to, to give a little background, the firm Dahlberg that I'm a part of is a Global South firm with offices in about 20 countries, mostly in Africa and Asia. And it focuses on policy and strategy and investment. So we wanted to bring a more creative collaborative approach to how that firm worked because it's driving, whether for the Gates Foundation or the Indian government or various stakeholders, a lot of interesting and powerful and large scale opportunities to change and improve people's lives. So that's what we do. And as part of it, we recruited talent in Nairobi and Mumbai to start to build design teams. And I'll just give you a, a great example. One of our uh, senior designers in Nairobi is a guy named Duncan, known him for many years, you know, and we first started working with him because we needed a guide. We were doing some user research and he came in and he just had a natural fun way of putting people at ease. And first, that's all we noticed. It's like in conversations, he just knew how to get people talking and thinking and feeling comfortable and building that trust. So that was the first piece. Then we started introducing creative activities and he was just great at prototyping and creating and bringing to life ideas uh, for and with people. So he's now a game designer. He's built a bunch of 3D games. He's worked with us on a whole host of different projects. But for him, he never knew that that creativity would lead anywhere. He grew up as a kid, just not, not having any sense that there was something powerful that sat behind that creativity that could allow him to design or help other people design, you know, very powerful new ways to make change in their own communities. Um, another example, we've got a, a young, actually not such a young guy named James, who's a community organizer, and he's worked with local communities in throughout Nairobi to build parks and create 
innovative and creative uses of, of shared public space. Mm -hmm. You know, so these people have worked and seen the power of creativity in a very small local way. We're trying to figure out well, how do you scale that out. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting what you what you what you point out. I mean, you're basically enabling more people to take part of the creative process. Is that what the, the focus is when you're referencing also social impact? I mean, it's one of the unique things we contribute to it, I think, is the trust that comes in. I mean, I saw this at Frog, working and going to visit a company like GE that seems very serious, that's run on spreadsheets, and yet you walk in and you have permission because they're open to a creative approach to kind of shift the way they behave and shift the mindsets. And yes, yeah, so we're trying to bring that creative process deep into grassroots activities with communities. We're also, you know, we have uh, work we've done in India with one of the Supreme Court justices there. And he recognized that India was starting to enact a bunch of data privacy laws and there wasn't a strong human perspective. And he didn't know where to begin to gather it because it's such an abstract topic. There is no word for privacy in many of the languages in India. It just, it's not a concept. And so he found his way to us. We got him involved in a more collaborative process of telling that story, of doing user research and gathering those insights, of prototyping different tools to help make privacy meaningful to people as a concept and as a topic. And so here's a guy incredibly influential for whom the creative process has kind of opened the door for him to a different way of thinking about policy at a, at a national scale for you know 1.6 billion people. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is super interesting. I mean, could you point out maybe some more projects on that intersection of design and, and social impact you, you guys worked on? Absolutely, and I want to be clear, that is all we do. You know, and part of the reason, as much as I love being in such an intense and beautiful creative environment as Frog, to impact these issues, it was necessary to shift into a different model mm -hmm. and work on a different platform. So that's part of the reason that Ravi Chatpar, my uh, close colleague and business partner and I, founded this practice. And so that's, that's the core of what we do. It's not like we do that to balance out other work. It's not like yeah. other work You've funds full that. Full focus on this, right? Full focus on it. And part of the focus there is to make sure that people see the value to pay for it fully. So we're not in a, working in any pro bono way. So I can list off you know, a lot of examples, particularly ones that have strong tech focus. You know, we got involved through some funding from the U.S. government to look at disease surveillance in West Africa. How do you map out the flow and spread of disease? There were a lot of technical people in a few different universities we were working with who understood how to model the data, but didn't really understand how to create value out of it. Uh, how it could support decision making, how it could create a space for people, particularly people across countries, to share information and make better decisions. And so we did a bunch of collaborative activities, not just at a national level in West Africa, but at a few countries at a local and district level. How would you use this data? What's the best way to represent it so you understand it? And what sort of shared communication and collaboration model should we build on top of this data so you can do something about it? Too often in a case like that, that data is flowing way up to like a national government or even to someone like the Red Cross and not allowing people at the local level to react and to make change. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we're, we're getting ready to do some work in Haiti. I talk about global health a lot with a set of community health workers that have been trained by a New York-based pediatrician because there's so little in the way of health support, particularly outside of Port-au-Prince. And so we're trying to build tools that allow them to share information, provide a bit of training, and help increase the capacity of local health workers to do very basic things for people that are missing. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's uh, diagnosing and sensing, you know, births that might have complications, whether it's child nutrition, very, very basic things. We're also in discussions with an organization that has tools to 3D model, so using the camera on a, on a high-end 
a relatively high-end tablet to be able to immediately sense whether a child is malnourished. So use 3D sensing and multiple cameras to kind of look at how we can start to much more quickly and easily diagnose malnutrition. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. So you mentioned Africa, but where where do you where most of your projects are happening? Is it is it Africa or also other places? Or? Well, keep in mind that we have a local design team in East Africa and we have a local design team in India, right? So, of course, we're doing a lot of work in those places, but it's not, it's not random. It's quite intentional. Mm -hmm. Over the last five years, our team has worked in more than 40 countries, growing uh, amount of work in Latin America. We worked actually did a really fun project in Peru with students looking at tools that would allow them to go out into their communities and take images of mosquitoes and, and water that was collecting mosquito eggs and then do little competitions in school to try and tell whether the, the mosquitoes might be carrying Zika. So it created a little app that will allow them to sort of participate in this game, earn rewards and all of that stuff. So things are happening everywhere. We recently did a project in the U.S. looking at the use of technology amongst aging Americans and how to better support financial decision making and access to financial information for long-term planning for people who are over 50. So, mm -hmm. you know, the work, work is, the needs are everywhere. And that's part of what we love about the work, part of what we find very humbling. So if you do design, it's, you know, innovation, social impact, it's so many places. How do you immerse yourself into these new scenarios? Because I can, I feel, I'm, I can imagine sometimes it's quite a big shift or you really need to immerse yourself into the problems you're trying to solve. How was your experience with, with that? Well, I mean, I'd say, first of all, we have an amazing team. And I adore them. And they're incredibly talented, curious, passionate, and empathetic. So on a personal level, I, I stand on their shoulders. And I have the privilege now that we've kind of built out a pretty robust practice that I can go and immerse myself through their eyes. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing when you've got a team that's already on the ground, that's already built trust, that's already working deeply in a community, and that brings a fair amount of cultural nuance. I mean, you can't generalize about, you know, a country like India, much less even a country like Kenya. But nonetheless, you know, I have the privilege of coming in and both having a bit of that outside's perspective, and I guess, you know, a fair amount of experience drawn, but at the same time, you know, I love the fact that I learn every day. Yeah, and you need to relearn every time, right? You know, it. I will say that it, At this point, many of the ideas about design and user experience that I felt so passionate about, particularly in my early days when I got back into design with Frog and some other firms, I feel have really migrated and been fairly well understood and adopted in the world of corporations, particularly technology savvy corporations. And so for me, it's just a pleasure to step back and go back into an environment where the basic assumptions we make about why design matters and how it should work in the world are fundamentally coming into question mm -hmm. and where you have to be so resourceful and thoughtful about the way you bring design and technology to bear. And so for me, that's just been part of the, the pleasure of kind of resetting my design compass. And, you know, when I go into uh, and participate, almost all our work involves pretty deep user research. So that's part of that immersion process. We're always doing fairly rich and robust ethnographic work and co-creative work. So For me, going back to that every time just helps helps reset that barometer. It keeps you, you know, feeling humble and grateful that people are giving you their time. And we're constantly checking on that. When we run user research, we ask people at the end, was this a good use of their time? And what you find is that people, so many people, coming back to what we were saying about creative potential, have such interesting stories and no one's listening. 
And even if you take two hours of their time to map out their journey. So I was in a, um, in a neighborhood in Mumbai, pretty dense, low-income neighborhood, talking to a woman who had, over about a 15-year period, built herself a business that now employs her whole family, delivering meals to kids. And we're sitting around. And she's mapping out how she did it, because we're working with an organ- a bunch of organizations looking how to build financial tools. And we're mapping all this out. And she spends two hours with us you know, telling us this story. And at the end, her husband, you know, we ask this question, her husband turns around and says, you know, basically I'm so proud of her and what she's accomplished. And yet no one's ever come in and asked us how she did it. And it's just really great to have the opportunity to, to tell that story. So, you know, we have a lot to be grateful for and you never know what you're gonna learn when you get that close to people's lives. And it, it brings a great deal of responsibility. And I think the hardest thing for our team is to translate that responsibility to action. We have the privilege of seeing such powerful kind of and meaningful situations and understanding richly the dynamics and how to help people. And yet, you know, we're working with organizations and governments that are gonna take a lot of time and aren't always well equipped to translate that into action. And uh, we've had some opportunities to launch some fairly big scale platforms. But overall, I think that's, that's the hard part is you carry around that responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also very fulfilling, I guess, right, as a, a working in that space, right, because you you really drive positive impact, right, and I guess it's that's also I think great working in that space, you know, contributing with the skills. And I think what's interesting, what you're pointing out, bringing design to the table, you know, I guess like in in some sense, it's maybe not about the craft skills of design when you contributing on on social impact, but more the co-creation aspects, uh, the co-innovation, facilitating aspects of design, right? So can you talk a little bit maybe about like what aspects of design or of the role of designers you, you, you take and, and, and bring to um, the table there to, uh, to the discussion of social impact? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it is a little bit of a different balance. Our clients are giving us public funds at times or donor funds. And so the integrity of that means that we have to make sure two things that any recommendations or designs we're developing on, we feel really confident that they have been developed with a strong understanding and with deep participation from the communities that we're working with. That's the first responsibility. And the second responsibility is we have to make sure that the outputs we're creating and the the new solutions we're imagining, we're not imagining for our own, you know, edification, that it's not just because they'll look good on a studio wall or on a portfolio website. And I say this with deep respect, you know, we, we have a great group of designers and that's not their motivation, but nonetheless, you know, it can be hard to let go of some of the polish and packaging that makes you feel confident about what you're doing. So for our team, it's definitely a balance that we have to strike and across the portfolio. So we keenly look for projects where we can drive that craft forward in a more deep and significant way. Sometimes it's through creating documentary films. We've done a whole big series mm-hmm. of those around the world about mm-hmm. people's financial lives. Sometimes it's something like de- disease mapping where we're creating representations of data that are building on deep analytics and we're trying to figure out how to best visualize them. And sometimes it's very simple things like launching a digital platform like we have in with, with Safaricom in uh, Kenya 
and just making sure that people are getting the right feedback and that we've kind of mapped out kind of the flow of information and the messages are are well written and thoughtful. So it can it can happen on many levels. And for a small team, we're stretched mm -hmm. to have all the crafts and skills that we need. Yeah, super interesting. You also wrote a book, as we mentioned in the introduction, User Friendly, uh, in last November. Can you give the audience a little bit of a brief introduction about the book and some of the, the drive behind it? Yes, absolutely. I think that in many ways, the book was named for my parents. The actual name, user-friendly, com comes from my dad. Mm -hmm. So he is 89 now. He retired at the age of 86. When he retired, I got him an iPad so that he could, A, for his vision and other ways, read and, and learn and, and, and explore a whole world of information. He reads routinely thousand-page history books. And I came to visit him about a week later after I'd given it to him, and he looked at me exasperated because a bunch of Wi-Fi password alerts, ridiculous things were popping up. And he said, I don't get it. This thing is supposed to be so damn user-friendly. I don't understand it at all. And what I realized is that I've been in a privileged position, like many people at this conference, where I've seen the buildup of new ways of interacting with technology happen layer by layer. You know, some of the first projects I did back in the 90s were simple ATM interfaces or simple products like a glucose, glucose meter. And today, All those models have built up to a point where they're everywhere in our lives. And most of the people I see around me are, feel like this has happened at warp speed, suddenly changing and creating opportunities and benefits, but complexity. And so working with Cliff Quang, who's an amazing journalist and designer, we wanted to take a step back and we wanted to really provide people with an accessible narrative that unpacks the role of design, how we got here and helps educate them around why designers are in a role where we're touching so many things and changing so many things, why do we believe we have the methods and answers to do it, and who are the individuals and people who along the way created this history. Whether it's a guy like Donald Norman, most of you are probably familiar with him from his groundbreaking book, The Design of Everyday Things, but in 1979 he was hired by the commission looking into the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster in the United States. So if you don't have background on this, this was the biggest nuclear disaster pre-Chernobyl in the US. It tanked the nuclear industry, you know, a multi-billion dollar industry. And it was seen largely as a mechanical failure. And Donald Norman was hired to take a look at it and realized it was a design failure. And in many ways, looking at that shaped the ideas that became the design of everyday things. So there are stories and they're very compelling stories. And what I realized is that I'm not equipped to, to tell those stories. So having a real journalist to me was you know, a real gift. And Cliff did an amazing job over six years of trying to unpack and report these stories. They go back hundreds of years, but they also come very much up to the present. And one of the interesting things for us in, in putting the book together, and Cliff was very much in the lead on gathering these stories on, and, and, and on writing the narrative, because I just don't have that, those skills. One of the things that changed was from 2014 to now, our feeling about design had changed with everything going on with Facebook and other platforms, there was a, a subtle shift, but a demonstrable one. So anyway, it was a, it's been an exciting journey. And I would say if I had to sum it up, my goal is to educate people the same way we understand today on, a nat on an intuitive level, the role the marketing plays in our lives, what it's trying to do. Design is, has reached that point of critical mass in society. And so that's the purpose of the book. So it's a combination of deep storytelling to unpack those concepts, great characters, bit of history, and then a front row seat in how the design process is playing out today, whether in mobility with firms like Audi, whether in the design of something like the Facebook Life like button, 
or a whole chapter, you know, devoted to Disney and Carnival Cruises and the augmentations they're making to the passenger experience. Mm -hmm. Are these projects you're referencing, the projects you, you worked on yourself or uh, maybe also referencing from stories and maybe um, other books and, and so on? It's a great question. And I honestly, when we sold the project, I assumed that, I don't know what the number was. I imagine at least a third to a half the stories would come from me. And the answer to that is no, they're not my stories. Other than a few. I mean, they're called out and you'll see it. But the reality is that, you know, a lot of design books and particularly more business oriented ones today, somebody with a long career, longer than mine, sits down, tells their greatest hits, business writer writes them up yeah. and you go to press, right? And you, at the end of each one, you've got a lesson, right? And then maybe you roll those lessons up into a Harvard Business Review article. The reality is Cliff took a look at those stories and all he wanted was great characters. He wanted to be on the front seat of the narrative. And when I looked at the work I'd done the last 10, 15 years, I didn't know how to get him and embed him in those narratives directly. So, you know, I think that that's part of what really led to the journey of the book is I was aware of some of the historical stories. And I, you know, I think each, not each, but many designers I know, we've assembled our own narrative of how we got here. You know, so I didn't know the Three Mile Island story, but I knew the story about, you know, Paul Fitz and Alphonse Chapanis and, and, and pilot error and how that led to shape coding and a whole different way of thinking about cockpits and design there. So there are a number of stories I was aware of, but you know, when you want to really build a long narrative, when you want to place people, particularly non-designers, in the situation and right on the edge of the seat of why design decisions matter. It required a huge amount of research and interviews and he obviously talked to Don Norman but found many amazing people to talk to. And so it's really first person reporting that he did that I think makes this book, well, is why I'm proud of the book, even though it's not my, my hands and ears that did that work, but I also think makes it a unique asset for designers. And at the end of the day, if you're doing this sort of design and you want to explain it to your parents and you've tried about a dozen times, like we all have, give them the stamp book. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You were also saying design is a privilege. That's something yeah. I, I read from, from you. Can you outline that perspective a little bit? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's pretty simple, and it probably comes down to two things that I've touched on already. One is, as designers, we have been given a space to question and a belief that we have a role to play in changing the world around us. And most people, again, many of the people we work with uh, and, and embed with and try and learn from, don't come in with those opportunities. Yeah, yeah. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is a little more personal in that... I personally feel privileged to have been on this design journey. It took me a while to get back to design as like the core of what I do. And I just feel very privileged to work with the talent that I do, to be able to build teams in the places that I do, and to you know see how that can change the lives of an individual like Duncan that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it ties back to what you said earlier about like driving social impact, right? And enabling people to you know, take part of that privilege in a way, right? Yeah. Maybe talking a little bit since we hit Interaction 20, I mean, you, you touched on a little bit already on user experience design, but if you look into the future of interaction design, what do you think are the important uh, topics moving forward? That's also a great question. And being here, you know, is great in that it allows you to reflect on that question. I think that there is a little bit, I perceive having been here for the last couple of days, a little bit of a div divergence happening where you've got a lot of the focus of design looking and sort of oriented towards trying to predict a future. And I think the models that sit under it and the assumptions are a bit, I would use the word techno-determinist, they're very mechanical. The way AI will work, the way self-driving cars will work, 
automation will work. We see very mechanical behavioral models sitting behind all that. And we're projecting a future in which we're trying to choreograph that. And I understand where that instinct comes from, but I have, as an optimist, faith that the world is not going to play out in such a mechanical way. And the, the way we think those technologies will play out and the reality of how they get absorbed into human life and human existence will be different. On the flip side, I see so many areas where some of the basic principles of design, of making particularly civil society and government services and all those things flexible and adaptive, we have so far to go. And uh, that's the train I'm on. With some exceptions, I feel like we have so much potential to learn to build truly powerful social systems that are tech and design enabled. So uh, for me, that's, that's still a long mission. And uh, I'm in it for the long game. You know, something that's you know, interesting, I think also you know, coming up as a topic more and more, I think you, you pointed out uh, when you were talking about social impact is the responsibility, the whole topic about responsibility, about ethics and about the outcome more than the output of design. And uh, I think this conversation is happening at the same time, there's a conversation happening about the value of design on business, right? And designers having a seat on the table, et cetera. And I feel like these two conversations point to different futures almost. Is that something you're also seeing or maybe you have a, a point of view on that? No, I, I do agree that um, these two conversations are happening. I'm hopeful that they're starting to come together, that as designers and design has a more powerful voice in, in organizations and businesses, that we won't just accept that humanizing the way businesses work and the use of technology is sufficient. And I think that uh, there are deeper ethical issues that I don't think we're that well prepared for yet. I think it, it just takes time to work at that scale and to live through what we've lived through the last 10 years in terms of, I would say, many of the unintended consequences of our work. So many of the folks that I need know in leadership positions in organizations who are creatives, I think are starting to grapple with that responsibility. I'd like to see more of that in government as well. And it doesn't need to be designers, but bringing a design ethos into government and policy is a big, big objective of ours. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're pointing this out, what what do you think designers need to be equipped with or um, need to learn, need to, how do, do designers need to be, uh, or need to evolve in terms of, you know, taking part of exactly that conversation? What do you think is, is, is missing? You know, it's it, that's also a really good question. And I see so much potential in so many of the designers that I work with. Yet at times it's hard for me, having been on this wandering journey for the last 35 years. Every day, folks come in our door, young designers, who have the right desires and aspirations for their work, who are, want to build their work around the right values, but they don't have the right amount of lived experience. They haven't been out in the world and they haven't been humbled by the challenges of, of working, particularly in the spaces we work in, and seeing how hard it is to take product services into those environments. So in many ways, I feel like there's a, it's a great moment in that I think so many designers are thinking this way. I think at the same time, there's just a lot of humility and life experience that's often lacking. And it's a struggle for me to try and figure out, well, how do you help designers bridge that, but also have the patience and humility to recognize that it's going to take time. And you know, for me, it's been, like I said, a really long journey. What I will say is that we're very interested in This, what I see as perhaps the next sort of wave of skills that I think designers will need to consider. And that's things like community, organiz community organizing, 
conflict resolution, mediation. You know, we see ourselves, I, I go to these conferences and whatever the topic is, everyone's talking about the designer as a translator, as a bridge, as someone who brings the human voice and balances that with other technical or business constraints. And the truth is you're mediating conversations and there's a lot of art and craft to things like that that we've never really pulled into our profession. So I'm trying to figure out what all that looks like uh, within the, the small practice that we have. But I would say for designers, that I work with, you know, putting yourself in the situations that are going to be the most humbling, where you have the most to learn and the greatest opportunity to have very hands-on interaction with communities and people different than you. I think all of that is for the good. Super interesting. Uh, maybe as a last question, wrap it up. I mean, you talked about bringing design to the topic of social impact. You were also mentioning governments. What are other verticals or other um, domains or other areas where you feel like design is maybe not designers, but design ethos you were, you were referencing most underrepresented or maybe areas where you hope design will take more part of the more part in the conversation? You know, there are a couple of things that are on my mind right now, but I think it's a long list is the bottom line. I think there's so many areas where design is yet to really fully explore and have an impact. A lot of the things I think about, because the things I work on, you know, they're long cycle problems, and they're going to take a long time to create the kind of change that we hope for. So it, it has me thinking about the opportunities to work on longer time frames. And there are two areas where it's coming up for us right now. One is around policy. So bringing designers in to help prototype policy, mm -hmm. to help make the process of setting and designing policy more responsive, that'd be one example. And we're doing it in a few areas like data privacy, but not, a, not enough and not a lot. And then the second would be infrastructure and urban scale questions. And there too, you know, there's um, a little bit of a gap still in the meeting ground between the kind of community-based engagement that urban planners and architects do that goes into that kind of long-term planning and the kind that, that we do as designers. And there are a few firms like Mass Design that are starting to fill that gap. Um, so that's another area I'd be super excited to see design have greater voice and impact in. I think we, we need to wrap it up because of time. But yeah, thank you so much uh, for, for sharing this. I think it's amazing to see what you're doing you know, on a social impact forefront and you know, really bringing design to the table there. So yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing this. And I hope this inspires a lot of designers to you know, also go into um, such a topic. So yeah, well, thank, thank you, you so much. And, and, and it's great to be able to bring these topics to your audience you know, and reflect particularly here at Interaction 20 on how they might be inspiring to a new generation of designers. Yeah, thank you. That was the episode. If you want to give us feedback on the podcast, have something to contribute to the next episode, or just want to get in touch, feel free to connect with us either on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram messages, or simply via the designdrives.org website. We love to hear from you.